We have been uh, teaching for a number of weeks on uh, the subject that we've entitled God and Miracles. And we want to continue along the lines uh, this morning. If you'd like to, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. You can follow along with me with some things that we're going to talk about this morning. Today, as I said earlier, was uh, recognized as Palm Sunday, uh, which signifies that a little over 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem with a, in a victorious manner. Everybody turned out. Everybody was, uh, it was his triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. It began the last week of his life before he was to offer himself on the cross. And uh, people were singing and shouting hosannas to him and spreading clothes and robes and garments in, his, in the way of the little donkey that he was riding and, and palm branches and, and so forth, uh, which I guess is where they get the name Palm Sunday. Um, but there was a reason for that. The reason for that is because, as Jesus said, if he had not done the miracles that he did, then man would not have been able to escape the judgment of sin. And uh, so we're, we're talking about some of those miracles. And this morning I want to talk to you about a few of them regarding Jesus and specifically uh, miracles that he superseded the laws of nature. And we want to start in Luke chapter 1 this morning because it it has to do with the birth of Jesus. And I don't know if you know this or not. Hopefully you do. But uh, this is one of the miracles. There are a few. And this is one of the miracles that your salvation depends on. If there was no virgin birth, there is no salvation. Because the virgin birth was the, the the necessary way, necessary means for God to overcome or uh, go around the spiritual death that was ruling mankind. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. So death, spiritual death, not physical death, but spiritual death, passed upon all men. If Jesus was not free from spiritual death, then he was not a righteous sacrifice. His ability to be free from sin hinged on two things. First of all, he had to be born free from sin, born apart from the spiritual death that passed upon man, that came down through Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden. And then secondly, he had to live a life of sin, uh, live a life free from sin, a sinless life on his own. Well, if Jesus lived a sinless life, as every Christian in every church that I know of that believes in Jesus uh, agrees, but he did not, but he was not born outside the law of sin and death or spiritual death that passed upon man because of Adam, then he still was subject to sin. He could not have been a righteous sacrifice. So I want to talk to you about uh, this. Uh, in, in my opinion, the, um, uh, there's a very um, close similarity, very close comparison between the creation of the universe and Jesus' birth. So let's start reading in Luke chapter 1 and about verse... Uh, oh, where do we want to start here? I don't want to read the whole story. Um, Well, I guess we better start with verse 26. It's Palm Sunday, so we'll read the the Christmas story. (laughs) And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. 
And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, verse 38, And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Now, there are a lot of things that we could talk about this morning. I don't want to get bogged down and spend too much time with any one because I've got several that I'd like to mention, several miracles of Jesus that I'd like to mention this morning. But, uh, but there are a couple of things that I think uh, uh, are worthy of our attention. First of all, you know as well as I do that Jesus' birth was foretold or the Messiah's coming was foretold uh, even down to the virgin birth and him serving or being given the throne of his, uh, David the king and so forth for hundreds of years, well over a thousand years, frankly. And there are 400 and some odd scriptures, uh, words of prophecy in the Old Testament that are relative to the coming of Jesus. So the only reason I point that out is to say that everybody would have to acknowledge that this was God's plan from the beginning. Wouldn't you? I mean, here is something that God has planned. He's ordained. He's set aside. He's purposed. I don't know what other words to use, but this is God's intent from the very beginning. The Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. So when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Gethsemane, or I'm sorry, the Garden of Eden, it wasn't a surprise to God. He knew what was going to happen before it happened. And he made a plan for redemption even before there was a need for redemption. Even before there was a man who would need to be redeemed was created. So this is God's plan from the very beginning. Yet it takes the consent of the individual. See this idea, this, and, and it's, it's generally called the sovereignty of God theory or doctrine or whatever. This idea that God just does whatever he wants to do independent of man's will is just a farce. God intended this from the beginning, but Mary has to consent to it. And notice she does so in verse 38. She says, be it unto me according to your word, or even as you've spoken. You need to understand something, folks. The most miraculous, I think, there are two great miracles in Jesus' life. One was his birth, and the other was his resurrection. Now, I don't know that there was, uh, uh, well, the resurrection is spoken of as a greater display of God's power than any other time. I don't know what kind of display of God's power was, ta- was necessary for there to be a, um, a, a sperm cell created out of nothing. I mean, I, I, in, uh, I kind of equate that with the Big Bang, with the creation of the universe. There was nothing, and all of a sudden there was something. 
Well, what was it? Was it some huge thing or was it some small particle or something that began, exploded, and who knows? Science says they know, but they don't have a clue. They do know that it happened. The more they learn, the more they do research and so forth, they know now that it happened. But they can't explain how it happened. They say, the last thing I saw reported by somebody that claims to, to be an atheist, they said, well, we know there was some kind of space dust. And nobody asked, where did that come from? But at, at any rate, they know that it happened, but they don't know how it happened. Well, there was nothing that became something in Mary's womb. The angel said in verse 35 that the Holy Ghost would overshadow her. But there was nothing that would create a baby. And then all of a sudden there was something. Why? Well, because God willed it. But, again, Mary had to consent. But I want you to see something, folks, and you're going to see this theme running throughout some of the miracles that we talk about this morning. There are physical laws of nature. In, in her case, as a virgin, the law of nature would be it's impossible for her to have a child because there's no sperm to fertilize an egg. But the Word of God can bend the laws of nature. The word of God can bend the laws of nature. Let's look at another one. Look with me over to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 tells us about Jesus in the early days of his ministry. We'll start reading in verse 1. It said, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, this is Peter, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. And he entered into one of the ship. I'm sorry, in verse 4, I've already written that. Verse 4. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a drought or a catch. And Simon answered, said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. In other words, Peter is saying, We're fishermen. We know how this works. You're not supposed to fish in the day. You're supposed to fish at night. The reason for it is because the fish can see the net in the daylight. That's why you fish at night. Then the fish swim into the net, catch the fish, and it works. We worked all night, and it didn't work, though. Now you're telling us to fish at the wrong time of day. Folks, I want you to understand something. God will sometimes tell you to fish in the wrong way. He'll sometimes tell you to fish, whatever your your means of business is. He'll sometimes give you direction that goes contrary to what you think good business sense says. And I want you to realize something else. Peter's increase was waiting for him. He just didn't know how to get it. There's always a way. I don't care what financial bind you and I find ourselves in. There's always a way out. The key is to find the way. And God's got that information. So he said, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch of fish. Peter said, Master. Now he's listened to him preach. The chronology of this is a little bit difficult for us because if you put Matthew's account together with um, Luke's account, there's an indication, at least the implication, that the previous day, Jesus has healed his mother-in-law. 
that this occurs just after Matthew 8 where it tells us about Jesus going into Peter's house. His mother-in-law was sick with a fever and he healed her. This could be the very next day. Many Bible scholars believe that it is. So he says, Master, we've toiled all the night and have caught nothing. Nevertheless. See, many Bible scholars say this is because of the healing of his mother-in-law the day before. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes in their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, let's go into the fishing business together. (laughs) That would make sense, wouldn't it? Simon Peter fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished and all that were with him at the drought or catch of the fishes which they had taken. Now, I want you to notice again, here's a miracle that takes place. There's a miraculous result, a miracle of business, a financial miracle that takes place. You know as well as I do that Peter's in the fishing business for the purpose of catching fish and selling them. So he knows, just like Jesus knows, that there is an end result of this catch of fish that Jesus has in mind, and that is for Peter to make a lot of money. I'm glad God's not against you making a lot of money. I know the church may be. But God's not against you making a lot of money. Matter of fact, he'll show you how when your heart's in the right place. If that's not the picture that we're supposed to get from this, I don't know what the, what is. Peter's reaction is kind of interesting. Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. What does the miracle cause Peter to realize? His lack. He's not excited. He didn't jump up and down and say, oh, man, this is the biggest catch of fish we'll ever have, ever have had. Do you know how much this is worth? His one and only one response is about his own sinful condition. I believe that's what the power of God is supposed to do. I believe the power of God is supposed to make those who don't know Jesus realize, man, I'm on the outs. But for those who do know the Lord, totally different situation. Look at the God that I serve. Now, why did this miracle take place? Because God intended it? Because God willed it? Well, in one sense, yeah. Jesus certainly was willing to reward Peter for having given Jesus the use of his boat. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the, that the reward way outstripped what Peter sacrificed. All Peter did was push out his boat a little bit. That's it. Instead of leaving it docked on the, on the, you know, pulled up on the sand of the shore, he pushed out a little bit and let Jesus teach. He may have had to row a little bit here and there to keep the boat still so that everybody could see and hear Jesus in, in a stationary position. But that doesn't sound like much to me. But Jesus' reward was way, way, way beyond what it cost Peter. You know, it's so funny, and, and I know everybody struggles with this or at, at some point in their lives anyway, but, uh, but I know it's particularly for the young people. They think they give up so much to serve God. Folks, you're not giving up anything. 
Because the reward so outweighs what you think you're giving up. It doesn't even compare. So why did this miracle take place? Well, certainly Jesus willed it. But it was dependent on Peter. In the same way that God willed for Jesus to be born of a virgin and had one picked out named Mary, it still depended on her. She had to consent. She had to accept. Peter had to consent and accept what the will of God was as expressed by his word. And both of them say almost exactly the same thing. Be it unto me, even as you've spoken is what Mary said. Peter said, at your word, I'll let down the net. Folks, I want you to understand something. That the laws of nature, this physical world that we think is so solid, so set in stone, so precise. And it is in the way that it operates and the laws that govern it. This world that is so exact. Those laws, which we think can never be broken, are easily bent by this thing called faith. If we would really get a hold of that and recognize the power there is in this thing called faith, we'd be world changers. They'd say of us like they did in the early days of the church, they that have turned the world upside down have come here too. Turn with me to another one. Let's look at Matthew chapter 14. Folks, there's no way that we can go through all the miracles of Jesus. There's 45 some odd, depending on how you count. And I, I, I'm, I know you, you know that I'm not one to have short series, but even I can't go that long. Matthew chapter 14, the first part of the chapter tells us about the beheading of John the Baptist. How that Jesus... Uh, was sad and pulled apart, but the, the, the multitudes found out where he was. And um, verse 14, it says, And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude. These are the folks that, that followed him where they heard that he went. And he went to, to, to be by himself to grieve John's death. Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and healed their sick. Moved with compassion. The word compassion is the word mercy. You've got a lot of people in the church world that say that healing's been done away with. It doesn't work the same way now. Jesus healed because he was the son of God, and it doesn't, doesn't happen that way now. But please notice, Jesus didn't heal him because he was the son of God. He healed him because he was moved with mercy. You ever heard anybody say the mercy of God's been done away with? No, and you never will. Because the mercy of God is what everything depends on. The mercy of God is what salvation hinges on. God didn't have to save mankind. He did because of his mercy. Not only that, but the Bible says over and over and over again, the mercy of the Lord endures forever. Well, I wonder about his healing mercy. When did that run out? It hasn't. He's just as merciful to heal the sick today as he is when he was here on the earth. And when it was evening, verse 15, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. And Jesus said unto them, they need not depart. Give them, give ye them to eat. Now, please notice the first thing Jesus said. Jesus did not say, I will feed them. He said, you feed them. Folks, this does not hinge on Jesus being the son of God. 
Or if it did, if it does, if this miracle hinges on Jesus being the Son of God, then Jesus tricked these guys. Now, if Jesus is a trickster, how is he a righteous sacrifice, a sinless sacrifice for us? If Jesus is going around being a partner to a fraud, then how is it that he's a worthy sacrifice for mankind? Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, a couple of questions. Is Jesus saying you give them something to eat to show them that they can't? Or is Jesus saying you give them something to eat to try to indicate to them you have power you don't know you have? I don't think it can be the first one. And Jesus, be honest. But I believe with all my heart it was the second one. I wonder if that's true for us. There certainly wasn't anything special about the the disciples. My goodness, even we could have made that group. This group wants to turn away. As soon as Jesus goes to the cross, the whole group wants to turn away. They go back to fishing. So there's nothing special about them in and of themselves. So what is he saying? You give them something to eat. I believe with all my heart that Paul prayed specifically by the Holy Ghost in Ephesians 1 that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we'd know what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us. If we ever figured that out, if we ever came to the understanding of what the exceeding greatness of the power of God that resides within us really is and what what it really can do, man, oh man, oh man. In fact, I believe that will be the very thing that happens right at the last days just before Jesus comes back. I believe that's what will cause the great uh, revival, the precious fruit of the earth to come forth that the Bible says Jesus is waiting for. That's the only thing it says he's waiting for. There's never been a time in the history of the world that, there, that, that nothing else has to be done historically, politically, any other way. Scripturally, there is not one thing way, hindering Jesus from coming back. He could come back as soon as he wanted to come back. Yet the Bible says there's one thing he's waiting for, and that's the precious fruit of the earth. That's it. Never been a time in the history of the world that that was true. But that's true today. Live ready. So he says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said unto him, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. Did Jesus know how much they had before he said what he did? There's no indication. If you look at the different gospel accounts of this, one account says uh, that uh, Mark's account, I believe it is Mark chapter 6, verse 30, Jesus uh, says to the disciples, uh, something about giving them the, giving the crowd food. And uh, one of them says, where would we buy enough food to feed this crowd? There's not a grocery store big enough. Costco is closed. There's nowhere to get enough food. So they certainly don't see any, any possibilities. And then Jesus asked them, what do you have? In this case, they just volunteered. But in other gospel accounts, it says different things. But not one of them says or indicates that they had already told Jesus what they had before he said what he did. So without any knowledge of what was available, Jesus said, you can do this. 
Folks, if that was true for them, it's true for you and me. So whatever your situation is and whatever you're complaining to the Lord about how bad it is, you need to realize the principle is you can do this. Yeah, but I don't have five loaves and two fishes. Oh, well, that changes everything then. And Jesus said, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and break and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And lightning flashed from heaven. And there was a great earthquake. In other words, Jesus said the blessing over the food. Just like you and I do. Well, like I do. I hope you do. He just said the blessing over the food. Where's the lightning flash? How did they multiply? We don't know. And the Holy Ghost didn't see fit to tell us anything special about the multiplication process. It just happened. Now, somebody asked me a question. How do five loaves and two fishes... Multiplied to such an amount that feeds 5,000 men. Could be 15,000 people, women and children included. It says it's 5,000 men. If Jesus' crowds were anything like crowds today, usually the women and the children outnumber the men two to one. So it could be somewhere 15, maybe, 15, maybe 20,000 people. How did five loaves and two fishes grow and multiply to feed five to 20,000 people? You pick the number you want. I don't really care. And then have 12 basketfuls of food left over. How does that happen? What happened to cause that to take place? Clearly something was made out of nothing. How did that happen? And why did it happen? Because there was a need for it. And Jesus recognized that the power of God was available to meet the need. What do you have? Whatever you have is enough to multiply. Yeah, but I don't have enough. That's why you need things to increase. Again, there's no special ritual taking place here. There's no sacrifice taking place on the top of the hill that causes this to happen. There's no burning of incense. There's no special thing, special event, special activity that takes place that causes the face of God to smile upon these people in this one specific situation. They just thank God. Verse 20, and they did all eat and were filled and took up the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. Folks, there's something else about this story that I think is often overlooked, and that is Jesus doesn't waste anything. He gives you more than enough, but he doesn't waste anything. If you're a waster, you better change that if you expect God's blessing to operate in your life. Jesus was not a waster. Now, the question then has to be asked, what did he do with the 12 baskets full? What did Jesus do with anything he had? He gave to other people. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. 
Here's another one. Goes right to another one. And straightway Jesus constrains his disciples to get into a ship to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with the wind, or tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Have you ever noticed God has never in one in any context ever showed up no angel has ever showed up no emissary from god has ever showed up and said be afraid god always says fear not fear not why but there but pastor mike there are legitimate things in the world to be afraid of yeah there are unless you know that the law of faith can bend the laws of nature if you know that there's nothing to be afraid of Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, I love this guy. I mean, he's a, he's, he's a nutcase sometimes. But you've got to give him one thing. He's willing to jump out there. I'd rather have somebody that's willing to jump out there and pull him back a little bit and try to get somebody to, like, to push him like an old mule trying to get him out of the ditch. So when Peter answered and said, Lord, if it be you, bid me come to you on the water. And he said, come. Now notice Jesus' response. It is not Peter. God has ordained this event before you were born. This is a part of the plan and the purpose of God. Now Peter said, I want to come do that too. You'll never find but one thing that Jesus said that he could do that nobody else could do, and that's go to the cross. You remember James and John's mother came to Jesus and said, I want you to let my kids sit on your right and your left hand when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, are they able to drink of the cup that I drink? He's talking about the cross. She didn't have any idea what was going on. So she said, oh, yeah. And he said, well, they will enter into my persecution. But the place you're asking for is not mine to give. That's the only thing you'll ever find that Jesus said only he could do and nobody else could do. Everything else Jesus did, he said, go do the same thing. Everything else. Which tells us it's not about Jesus being the son of God. It which tells us that the, the, the things that happened, the miracles that happened, didn't happen because Jesus was the son of God. They happened for one and only one thing, one reason, one cause, and that is faith in God's word. The Bible says we have the same spirit of faith. First uh, Corinthians four thirteen says we have the same spirit of faith as Jesus. See, most people look at uh, at at the people themselves. They look at Jesus and say, "Well, yeah, sure, Jesus could believe. Yeah, sure, Jesus could do miracles." But Jesus said Himself, "It's not me that's doing them. It's the Father in me that does it." Now, how was the Father in Him? Is the Father in Him any different than He than the Father is in you? No. Jesus had the life of God. He was born of the Spirit of God, just like you're born of the Spirit of God. He had the same work of the Holy Spirit in him that you have in you. See, faith is like the electrical current in your house. Anybody can plug into it any time they want to. It's not the individual. Now, you can plug whatever you want to in there. You can plug one of these little candle warmer things that smell, you know, 
put smell throughout the house? You can plug in your little candle warmer and say, well, God has done all these things for a reason. I don't know why I'm in the trouble I'm in. I don't know why I'm sick, but God's got a purpose in it. And make the house smell all kinds of real good by, while you say it. Or you can plug in a buzzsaw. Something that will cut through whatever problem you've got and deal with the situation at hand. Now, what would we credit? Would we credit the, the candle warmer as opposed to the buzzsaw? We'll unplug the buzzsaw and it's nothing. You unplug from God and you're nothing. But when you're plugged in and you plug in through this thing called faith, when you plug in, you can accomplish a lot of stuff and do the things that God wants you to do. See, it's not the individual. It's the faith that you plug into. Faith's like a river. Anybody can jump in. It's your choice. You can stand on the side of the riverbank and say, well, I just don't understand these people jumping in the river and having all the fun they're having. I just don't understand. God just doesn't want the same things for everybody, you know. Or you can jump in. It's not the person other than the, than the choice that's made. It's the faith that you're tapping into. That's how you can have the same spirit of faith as Jesus had. You've got the same spirit of faith. You have the same faith that Jesus used to raise the dead. You have the same faith that Jesus used to, to do miracles. To cause the blind to see and the lame to walk. You have the same spirit of faith. It's exactly the same faith. Why? Because faith is based on the word and the word never changes. The unchangeable part is God's word. You just have to decide what you, what you plug into. So Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Why did Jesus not say, now, wait a minute, Peter, you don't understand. I'm walking on the water. The reason I'm walking on the water is because I'm the son of God. You don't know the physical change, the, the things that have changed in nature for me to be able to stand on the water. And, and I don't either. I mean, I can see some possibilities. Either the water becomes solid or Jesus levitates. One's about the same thing as the other to me. They're both miracles. So what is it? And if the water is becoming solid, is it becoming solid? And is there a path that Jesus is watching and saying, okay, I need to stay right here in the center? Or does the water change when his foot touches it? Does it become solid to hold him up as soon as he takes a step? No takers on that one, huh? And regardless of what it is, whatever is happening, whether Jesus knows or doesn't know, I don't even know. Maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't care. It's not important. His, his point is to walk on the water to get where he's going. But whatever it is, Jesus does not say, now, wait a minute, Peter. I'd love to have you come out here with me, but this only works for me. Well, clearly it didn't just work for him. Well, this only works by the will of God. Well, who determined the will of God for Peter? God or Peter? Well, Peter's the one that asked. 
He said, Lord, if it's you, let me come out there with you. Okay. Now, God is no respecter of persons. Could Thomas have gotten out of the boat? Yeah, yeah he never would have, but he could have. <laughs> what about John? What do you think John's thinking when Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water to go to Jesus? Wait, I'm the one he loves. <laughs> I can, I, it, it baffles me that there wasn't a chorus coming from the boat saying, me too, me too, me too. And what if there had been? What would Jesus have done or what would he have said? How would he, would he have responded? No, only two at a time. Everybody get a buddy. <laughs> See, whether we think these things or not, we put such limitations on stuff in our heads. What removed the limitation in Peter's head? He saw Jesus do it. Again, Peter didn't fall down at the edge of the boat and say, wow, now I know you're the son of God. Now, I would have understood that response. Really. I could have related to that one. That would have made perfect sense to me. Man, oh man, we've seen you do good stuff. That feeding of the 5,000, that got us wondering, but now we know. Nobody could walk on the water but you. But instead, his response is, Jesus. Hey, I want to do that too, man. That looks so cool. Let me do that too. And Jesus says, come. He doesn't say, no, you don't understand. This will mess up the story for the gospels later on. He just says, come. Sure. No hesitation. He doesn't have to pray about it. Sure. Come. That one word, folks, please understand. This is why faith is the issue. This is why faith is the issue because the faith is always based on the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hearing that one four-letter word was enough for Peter to walk on the water. Now, I don't know how it worked for Jesus. I don't know what Jesus did. I don't know if Jesus got to the water's edge and he said, Lord, I need to get across. Father, what do I do? Holy Ghost spoke to him and says, walk on the water. I don't know. I don't know if Jesus comes to the edge of the water and doesn't even give it a thought. He thinks, well, I've got to go, and so I'm going to go. I have no idea. I have no idea if Jesus understands that this is something that's going to be a part of the gospel account. And so the Holy Ghost wants to give a record of it. So this is the way it happens. Jesus could just as easily have been translated to the other side and never walked a step. Couldn't he? I mean, that happens to Philip in the, in the book of Acts. So it's no big step for God. So what is this? Is this God telling him what to do? Is this God telling him what step to take? Or is it Jesus just going about his business? He walks everywhere else he goes, so he walks on the water. I don't know, but he ascertained the will of God for, for this place in this situation. Now, there's no scripture that says you can walk on the water. So how do you find that out? It's got to be something that God speaks to your heart. Or in Peter's case, that Jesus said to him. Are you with me? One word, come. 
And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. I would, these ships are pretty big and, and uh, they've discovered one that was from Jesus' day. And so they've got kind of an idea how big they are and, and that kind of thing. And, and when I say kind of big, it, was, it certainly had enough of these guys. So when it talks about coming down, it, it indicates there were kind of two levels on it. And so he comes down from the, from the upper deck. There must have been a hold or something like that underneath. And so he comes down. I would be delighted to find out from Peter, what were you thinking while you were on your way down? You can't tell me that he didn't have a thought of doubt. Now, I could understand it if Peter jumped over the side too quick before he thought. I've done that some. Jumped before I thought. But it doesn't. It doesn't say that. It says that when he was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Whatever thoughts he had on the way out weren't enough to stop him from walking on the water. He conquered those. Why? Because Jesus said, come. So he walked on the water to go to Jesus. There was enough power in the, word Jesus, the one word Jesus spoke, come, for him to walk on the water. So many times people have the idea, well, I don't know enough of the word. Look how much it takes. It takes the knowledge of God's will. That's it. I think we make it too complicated sometimes. We think we've got to know, and then we've got to know this, and we've got to be able to go to the Old Testament find out what that said, and then we've got to know what Paul said, and then what John said, and what the Gospels say. If you know what the will of God is, you know. Now, you can add knowledge to what you already know. Sure, we should grow and renew our minds to the Word and so forth, but once you know, you know. So Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind... When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. What does that tell us? That tells us Jesus, that uh, excuse me, Peter got out there on the water. The water is becoming solid under his feet or whatever, however it's working. He's taking one step. He's taking a few, n- another step. He takes another step, and then he realizes the wind is blowing. Now, folks, why are they having trouble rowing in the middle of the sea to begin with? Because the wind is contrary. Did the wind just start blowing when Peter was out there? What was it that caused him to begin to sink? When he saw the wind boisterous, he beginning to sink, cried out and said, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Peter gets out in the middle of the water. Wasn't too far away from Jesus. Jesus was close enough to reach him. He gets out in the middle of the water, walking on top of the water. And he sees the wind. He sees the effect of the wind. He sees the waves. Maybe one slaps him in the side. Splashes up on him. I don't know. And what happens? He went from faith to doubt like that. Now what caused him to doubt? He saw the wind. Well, okay, I can relate to that. Everybody knows you can't walk on the water when the wind's blowing. If only it was a calm day. Then we could do it. What does that have to do with anything? Nothing. It has nothing to do with it. But the devil used the circumstance to cause him to slip out of faith 
to doubt. Now, if, if he had taken the time, and I'm sure all this stuff happened instantaneously with him, just like it does with us. But if he had taken the time to think this through, he could have thought, now, wait a minute, what did Jesus tell me to come for? So I could sink or walk? If he told me to come, he cares about me. He's not going to let me out here in the middle of the thing and, and drop like a rock and sink to the bottom. He could have reasoned this thing out, but he didn't. He went from walking on the water to beginning to sink. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to put my own interpretation on this because in my estimation, there's only one thing that could have caused him to sink. And it wasn't the doubts. It wasn't the thoughts in his mind. Faith will work. Faith is of the heart. It's of the spirit. Faith will work from your heart even when there's doubt in your mind. So it's not the doubts. It's not the thoughts. Wow, the wind's really blowing out here. That's not going to cause him to sink. There's only one thing that will cause him to sink, and that is if he stops acting on the one word Jesus said, which was come. He stopped walking and stood still. As long as he's acting on what Jesus said, he's good. He could have walked backwards to Jesus if he'd wanted to. So when it says he began to, when he saw the wind boisterous, he beginning he beginning to doubt, started to sink. That has to mean one and only one thing, and that is he stopped walking. When he stopped acting on the word, that's when the thoughts took over. Now, why did he stop walking? Because of the fear that was associated with the thoughts of the wind. I want you to notice, folks, fear was not enough to stop him to begin with. The wind wasn't enough to stop him to begin with. But when he took notice of them and acted on them, acted according to them instead of according to the word that Jesus said, which was come, that's when he began to sing. Now, I think that's interesting as well, too. How do you begin to sing? Sinking is an either-or situation, isn't it? You're either on top or you're sinking. How do you begin to sink? I heard somebody describe it this way, and I thought it was real good. His faith left him by degrees. He begins to lower down into the water. His faith left him by degrees. Faith comes by degrees, and it leaves by degrees. How? By hearing. Romans ten seventeen. so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word. His faith left him by degrees. So he cried out, Jesus, save me. Jesus reached out and grabbed his hand and says, Oh, thou of little faith. Wherefore or why did you doubt? That's a great question. Why doubt? Yeah, but I saw the wind. That wasn't new. Wind was blowing before Jesus ever got there. We know that because Jesus saw them in his heart, had a vision of them toiling and rowing. Mark's account says they were struggling against the, the, the wind before he ever walked out on the water. It's not the wind that stopped Peter. It's not the waves that stopped Peter. The only thing that stopped Peter was Peter. He chose to doubt. What circumstance is powerful enough? In Peter's situation, what circumstance was powerful enough to stop him from walking on the water? One of the, one of the great miracles, from a natural standpoint, one of the great miracles that you can imagine. What was powerful enough to stop him from walking on the water? Only his doubt. And it wasn't even the circumstance. It was the action that he took based on the circumstance. So why should we doubt? Was the word of Jesus, the one word come, not enough? 
If so, why didn't Peter call out to Jesus and saying, say it again, Jesus, say it again. Tell me to keep coming. Wasn't necessary. He already had the word. His choice was very simple. Do I act on what Jesus said or not? And folks, his choice is the same as yours and mine. In every situation, every day of our lives, do we do what the word says or do we do something else? Yeah, but it doesn't look like what the word says is going to work. Well, that may mean you have to walk on top of what it looks like in the world. Matthew chapter 15. Uh, Let's start in verse... um, Middle part of the chapter tells us about the Syrophoenician woman being healed. And then verse 29 says, And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame. Now, this is the the, the most complete, to my knowledge, this is the most complete description of a crowd of sick people that we have in the Scripture. They brought unto him those that were lame, crippled, blind, dumb, maimed, missing body parts, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Now, I want you to notice something about this. It makes no distinction between healings and miracles. How do you heal a maimed person? How do you heal somebody that's missing a hand? Well, you put the hand back. How does that happen? Does the hand grow? Well, there's nothing there for it to grow from. Then it's got to be a miracle to replace it. To replace a missing part. And folks, a lot of things that we look like look at as normal healings are miracles. In in one sense, every healing is a miracle. Because even if the human body is as it's designed to heal itself or to amend, the fact that somebody is sick means that there's something that's hindering or is a barrier or an obstacle to that healing process. God built into the human body a healing process. And medical science, the only thing they can do is try to remove those barriers so the body can heal itself. Now, in many cases, those barriers is a tumor or something like that, and they try to cut it out of the body. But there are a lot of things about healing that if we could see what was going on, there may be things that are missing or things that have to be replaced by replace, I don't mean something that's not there and then put there. I mean something that's defective and has to be has to be repaired. But even that would be a miracle. Every instant healing has to be miraculous. Whether it fits the bona fide definition of a miracle, something appearing out of nothing or not, every instant healing has to be a bona fide, has to be a miracle, whether it meets the the clinical definition of it or not. Because even if the the natural amending process of the human body is accelerated, that's miraculous. I think in, in, in too many cases, we've separated healings from miracles. And the end result is, yeah, we believe that God heals. But then we've got some idea that miracles are untouchable. Everything that God has ever done is miraculous in some way or another. You being saved was certainly miraculous. He took an old heart, a dead heart, a spiritually dead heart, spirit out of you, and replaced it with a spiritually alive, a, a, a spirit that's alive unto God. 
How in the world does that happen? I don't know. The only thing I know is it has to happen quick. Because James said the body without the spirit is dead. So it has to happen in less than the time that it takes you to breathe a breath of air. Oh, but Pastor Mike, that's, that's not what the Bible means. Well, that's what it says. No, God doesn't take an old heart out of you and old spirit and put it in a new spirit. He just fixes the old one. How do you fix something that has the, the, the residue of spiritual death? God's very specific when he says, I'll take out the old heart, the old stony heart, spirit, and replace it with a heart of flesh. Very specific when he says that. Well, that's not what he meant. Then why did he say it? I'm sure glad God was specific when he said that gravity is supposed to work a certain way. But he's not supposed to be specific when he talks about salvation. That's just nuts. So you got miracle healings that are taking place here. And it's casual. I mean, it just mentions it casually. It's like Matthew takes the attitude or the position that, well, I, you know, I can't make this book go on forever. So, yeah, there was a bunch of folks, great multitudes. I don't know how great multitude, how big that is, but it sounds to me like a lot of people. Great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame and dumb, blind and dumb and maimed and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Ho-hum. In so much, I love this phrase, in so much that the multitudes wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, where's the idea that the modern-day church has about glorifying God in sickness? Why aren't they glorifying God while these people are still sick? Notice they begin to glorify God after they get well. You do a study in the four Gospels, you'll find out people glorified God after they got well, not while they were sick. Why does the church try to reverse that? Then Jesus called his disciples unto him, verse 32, and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. And his disciples said unto him, oh, wait, we've been here before. We know how this works. We've got seven loaves and a few fishes. Now the disciples said, where should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill this great a multitude? Why don't they turn back a page and read in chapter 14? (laughs) And folks, this is Matthew. The reason I'm going to Matthew, we could have gone to any of the other gospels and seen this account. I want you to see this is right after it happened before. Now, my thinking, I'm not throwing rocks at them because I might have been one of the ones to say, you know, there's no place around here to buy food. I'd like to think that I wouldn't, but who knows? But I have to think that Jesus, somewhere along the way, is shaking his head thinking, when are these guys going to learn? I fed the 5,000. I healed the multitudes. I walked on the water. What are they thinking? Well, you can see what they're thinking. They're thinking naturally. They're thinking laws of nature. They're thinking big crowds, a little bit of food. That's a problem. But Jesus has already expressed what he wants to happen. 
At the very least, they could have been quiet and watched. But they said, well, where are we going to buy so much food for this crowd? And Jesus said unto them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks and break them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. Same thing, just says the blessing. And they did all eat and were filled and took up the broken meat that was left. Seven baskets full. And they that did eat were 4,000 men beside women and children. It could have been ten or 12,000 people. Now, this is the same multitude that he just healed. You would think that would have been enough. If he's trying to prove something to him, why feed him? He just, he just proved that he's the healing son of God. He just made the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, the dumb to speak. The deaf to hear. Everybody in the crowd is just gaga. Filled with wonder. Wow, we have never seen anything like this. And Jesus said, let's eat before we go. So what if there's 10 or 12,000 of you? How much food we got? Seven loaves and two fishes. Well, that's enough for me. You guys are on your own. He just says the blessing. He just says the blessing. And they had seven baskets full left over. Again, Jesus didn't waste anything. And he sent away the multitude and took ship and came to the coast of Magdala. Let me look at one last one this morning. I know we're out of time, so I'll cover this quick. Turn with me over to John chapter 1. I'm sorry, John chapter 2. John chapter 2, beginning verse 1, it says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, there's two other places, and both of them are in John's gospel, that Jesus talks about his hour not coming. And both of those have to do with the cross. One is in John chapter 7, verse 30, and the other is in John chapter 12, verses 25 and 27 something like that two other times where jesus talks about mine hour is not yet come when he says this to his mother and it seems like a very very uh, well it seems like he's upset with her for no reason so there's got to be something else going on that doesn't come across in the in the translation when jesus is told by his mother they don't have any wine she must be coming to him with some expectation that he's going to do something in order for him to respond the way that he did Right? Otherwise, what's the point in him saying that? Now, when he says, my hour has not yet come, he does not mean my public ministry has not started. Because in chapter 1, he's been baptized by John in the Jordan River, and the Holy Ghost has come upon him in bodily shape as a dove. We know immediately following that from Luke's gospel that Jesus left to go into the wilderness. He was tempted of the devil out there. He spent 40 days fasting and then was tempted of the devil, and he endured the temptation, and he comes back in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Now, this is what John says is his first miracle. So between Luke's account, this had to take place. So he's been baptized by John in the, John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. He comes back in the power of the Spirit. He's endured the temptation in the time in the wilderness and so forth. Now he comes back. First thing that he and his disciples do is they go to this wedding. And his mother comes to him and says, they don't have any wine. 
Now, she has to have some kind of responsibility in this thing or else she wouldn't have come to him. Now, there's all kinds of church tradition and stuff like that about this was a cousin of uh, Mary's and that's why she had some kind of place of responsibility here. And I don't know, maybe, who knows? I don't really care. But Jesus responds and says, woman, what do I have to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. It seems to indicate that he's saying, you don't decide how the power of God works in me. I can't come up with any other explanation of what he's, what he's saying. Woman, what do I have to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. Well, every other time you talked about your hour coming, you're talking about the cross. Of course, you're not going to the cross. You're just entering your public ministry. But he has entered his public ministry. He is empowered by the Holy Ghost to enter his public ministry. Hadn't done any miracles yet. This is his first one. But he's empowered by the Holy Ghost to do them. And his mother said unto the servants, please notice verse 5. His mother said unto the servants, whatsoever he says unto you, do it. Now, if Jesus has never done a miracle before in his life, what's she saying that for? And he hasn't. I'm I'm not arguing the point. He's never done a miracle. So what's she saying that for? This is the first miracle. The Bible says, John specifically says, after he turns the water into wine, this is his first miracle. So what's she telling the servants? Whatever he says to do, you do it. Folks, you need to understand something. Because Jesus has lived on the earth as a righteous man from his birth, he's had the blessing of God on him. He's been operating according to the word, the, the ordinance of God, the unchanging law of God. I will deal with you as you've spoken in my ears. Jesus has lived a supernatural life in front of his mother. She knows what he says happens. Now, not in a public context because he's never done anything for the benefit of other people. He's never ministered the power of God to other people because he's never been uh, anointed of the Holy Ghost. That happened when John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan River. But he's lived a life filled with power, the power of a righteous man according to the Old Covenant. So she says to the servants, look, whatever he tells to you, you do it. What he says works. So don't argue with him. You do what he says do. This is one of the greatest um, examples to me of the difference between the, the power of God in your own life and using the power of God to help other people. If Jesus has not experienced the power of God to, to uh well, let me say it this way. If Jesus has not experienced the blessings of Abraham's covenant throughout his life, then God owes him an apology because he's lived righteous. He's kept the law. Do you see where I'm going with this? So his mother says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. So then Jesus gives instructions he said there were set six water pots of stone by the way these six water pots of stone this was the water that they washed their feet in i don't mean they dip their feet in this so it's dirty water but this is the the pots that they pull water out to wash the people's feet when they show up to the wedding so there's six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the jews containing two or three firkins apiece uh, margin of my bible says a firkin is about nine gallons so this is about 18 gallon water pots 18 to 25 gallon pots, I guess. And Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, draw out now and bear to the governor of the feast. (sighs) Who wants to do that job? 
Now, the Bible does not say when the water turned to wine. It does not tell us that they carried wine to the governor of the feast. It doesn't say, it doesn't say that at all. It says they drew out, they filled them with water. Jesus said, draw out now and bear into the governor of the feast, and they bear it. They're taking what may be, every step along the way, water from the foot washing pots for the governor of the feast to drink. They better hope this guy's drunk. Now, here's another thing when it comes to the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. When Jesus blessed the, the loaves and the fishes and then broke them in pieces and gave them to the disciples, when did they multiply? Did they multiply while the disciples had them in the basket? Did they multiply as people started pulling them out? Did they ever get more than just one or two in the bottom? See, we think, and we've seen movies like this, to where all of a sudden a little piece of a fish becomes an overflowing barrel full of fish. Did it? I mean, it could have, but do we know? What about the woman in the Old Testament where the meal and the oil didn't waste? Did it ever say that her meal barrel filled up? No, it says she always had one more day's worth. Did it ever become more than that one day's worth? See, I can see that happening in a number of ways. It could be one miracle, an instant miracle to where all of a sudden everything fills up to where it lasts them for however how many months they need it. Or it could be a miracle that happens every morning. When they reach in, there's always one more handful. I don't know which way it is. I don't know which way it worked with the, the loaves and the fishes. I don't know which way it worked with the water and the wine. We like to think that God's going to do everything so it looks right and then we can take action. But in my experience, a lot of times, it doesn't look like anything yet when you're given instruction to do something. So they took it to the governor of the feast. And he said unto them, uh, well, verse 9, when the, the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, he didn't know where it came from. But the servants knew which drew the water. They know. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then thou, then that which is worse. Keep the bad stuff till later when everybody can't tell anymore. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Verse 11. This beginning of miracles means it's the first one. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. One last thought I want to give you to you folks, and that is the Bible says, and we've looked at this over and over again, that one of the promises of the end times is that the glory of the Lord shall fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. If Jesus manifested the glory of God in his day through miracles, what is going to manifest the glory of God in our day? Are we left... Jesus had miracles to manifest the glory of God, but are, are we left with just preaching? Are we left with just trying to persuade people? I mean, no matter how good you think somebody is, how good a preacher you think somebody is, I would dare stack them up against Jesus. So Jesus had the best preaching of the day. Jesus did the best teaching that could ever be done, and he still did miracles to manifest the glory of God. Why should it be any different for us? 
Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14. He said, whatsoever you should call for or require in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So who's holding back? Us or God? The more I study this stuff, the more I see that the ball's in our court. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, we don't want to make mistakes. Well, I don't either. We don't want to step out there and try to do something that, that, that God doesn't back us up with. I don't want that either. But let me tell you where that thinking comes from. And I, I, I hope nobody takes this out of the context and runs off with it in the wrong way. There's a real fine line between somebody trying to do something and make something happen on their own that God hadn't directed them to. And somebody stepping out because the word gives them confidence to take action upon it. I read after people like Wigglesworth and Lake and some of these guys. Wigglesworth particularly. Wigglesworth made a statement one time that, that's been real tough for me to accept. He said, if the spirit doesn't move me, I move him. Now, I have, no, I have no doubt that it had to do with the ministry that God had given him. I have no doubt that what he did, somebody else trying to copy that, wouldn't get the same results. But Wigglesworth would, would say, he would, and he, I mean, he didn't come out and tell the people because it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that would build their faith. But he would tell those that were close to him when they would ask him about the miracles and the healings and different things like that had taken place. Did God tell you to do that? He'd, he'd just say, well, of course not. Now, what he meant was, the Holy Ghost didn't speak to me to do something in that case. But the word already said do it, so he did it. I was just, he would say, of course not. I was just acting on the word. He just pulled somebody out of a wheelchair because he's acting on the word. Well, folks, I've seen a lot of people pull people out of wheelchairs and the people in the wheelchairs fell. What's the difference? Well, again, I have to conclude that it had to do something with Wigglesworth ministry. I have to conclude that it had something to do with either the faith that he had, the understanding that he had about what God's work and God's plan was for his life and the, and the, the call that was upon his ministry. Or he had something we don't yet have. Now, that doesn't mean he had something we can't have. Now, I'm learning in this stuff just like you are. But, boy, I'm seeing things I didn't see before. And I'm gaining confidence about things that I didn't have before. I was one, I, I, I'll, well, I'll just tell off on myself. I'm one of the ones that used to think about the difference between healings and miracles. Now, the more I read and study about miracles, the more they seem even to me. And they are. They're one and the same as far as God's concerned. I had a friend in ministry who, uh, who had a miracle take place in their uh, in, they were in some foreign country. I don't remember even where they were. But uh, there was a, uh, well, what happened was different from the story about what happened. There was a um, uh, little girl that, uh, that didn't have any feet. Her legs are, are somehow cut off. I don't know if she was born that way or for an accident or whatever the case was, but she didn't have any feet. And uh, the story about the miracle was that, you know, lightning flash from heaven type thing and, great results took place and the little girl starts running around the room now all of a sudden she's got feet well beth and i'd heard the story and so we we saw this girl um year or so after the story that we had heard and so we asked her about it 
We said, we heard about this miracle that you had with this girl's feet. What happened? She kind of smiled. And you could tell she's told the story a million times. And she said, well, it's not like what you've heard. She said, there was a big crowd, and I laid hands on hundreds of people. She said, I was just flat wore out. She said, and finally they bring this little girl to me, and she said, when they told me what the situation was, the interpreter told me what the situation was, I saw her little girl didn't have feet. She said, my heart just sank. I just thought, oh, Lord, what am I going to be able to do for this little girl? She said, so I just laid hands on her, prayed the simplest prayer. She said, not an ounce of faith to it. Just prayed the simplest prayer and said, Lord, heal this little girl in Jesus' name. And all of a sudden, feet appeared. She said, now I'm the hero. She said, I'm embarrassed to say that I wasn't even trusting God for anything. But let me ask you a question. Is the lack of feeling faith the absence of faith? Here's another statement that Wigglesworth used to make. He said, when I feel like my faith is the strongest, that's when I'm the weakest. Because I'm going by my feelings. But when I feel the weakest in faith, that's when I'm the strongest. Because then all I've got is his word. Thank God for his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that healings and miracles are a part of the life of God and the power of God within us. Thank you, Father, that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of your glory like the waters cover the sea. And in Jesus' day, miracles and healings glorified you. Thank you that they still do. Thank you for healings and miracles in our day. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.